Sourcing for Innovation podcast, episode 16. I am Adam Curtis, your host, joined with a first-timer on the podcast, Tom Eiler, Chief Product Officer at Catalyte. Good afternoon, Tom. Good afternoon, Adam. So a little bit of background on you. You joined Catalyte just about a month ago. Before that, you had 20 years plus experience leading technology and data science teams. Uh, you come to us from Integral Ad Sciences, where you were the chief technology officer. Uh, and previously, you had served in technology, data science, and product—excuse uh, me—product management roles. Technology companies, some of you might recognize, Advertising.com, AOL, Build Trust, and now you're here today to talk to us in general about why the key makes no sense for our modern life. Now, that might not make sense to listeners right at the moment, but a couple weeks ago, you and I were just sort of spitballing ideas. You got on this riff about keys and about credit cards, and I was like, where is this guy going with this? But it ended up in a place that I think makes a lot of sense for what we at Catalyte are doing and what sort of the community and industry at large need to be doing in terms of how they're thinking about technology and how it relates to their people. So to start out there at the beginning, walk us through your hatred or distaste for keys and for credit cards. Certainly, Adam. And, and you, you made the horrible mistake of walking in front of my office in the afternoon when I was thinking um, about big problems. And um, you, you just got caught up into one of my rants. The thing that's interesting, at least to me, about keys, I, you know, I look at my keychain every day when I grab them off of the bookshelf to, to head out, to, to head to work. And I'm always reminded at probably how silly keys are in this day and age. That if, if you had someone who came down and said, as a technologist or an engineer, I want you to design a mechanism to secure something, a door, a cabinet, whatever, um, and it's got to have certain characteristics. The likelihood of, of someone in today's age with access to all of the technology and all of the means that we have that they would say, well, I want to get this metal plate and I want to create a template and then carve unique notches out of it to use just seems ludicrous. Um, very artisanal. Very, very artisanal. I, I guess maybe maybe if you're you're uh, from certain certain parts of uh, Brooklyn or something, it might be really cool. But I look at it as just like a classic sign uh, on a daily basis of the problems that we face. Um, and, and I had a similar rant with you about the credit card that, you know, the shape of the credit card was such because uh, we had to, to, to create a magnetic stripe that could, could carry a, a, a long numeric number for, for use. But that technology has come and gone, but yet we still carry these little rectangular pieces of plastic. You know, there's no reason why we have to have more than one piece of plastic and there's no reason why it has to be like that. It could be a lot of different things these days. And we are starting to move to, to cell phone based technology and things like that. But again, it's, it's, it's um, an amazing tribute to humanity's kind of commitment to hold on to the past and the, the challenges associated with breaking assumptions and thinking differently. And um, I love the keys because it reminds me every day that I, want, I don't want to just recreate keys. I want to think um, about 
the right way and the new way to solve problems and not just stand on top of things that have been done in the past. So how does this then connect to the idea that, you know, we've talked about before on this podcast about the resume being sort of like the key. It's something that was very practical at some point in time. It served its purpose. It was probably a better way to find people that you needed for your company that was fairer, um, more transparent than just a, a buddy system or, hey, I know this guy, he knows a guy, that sort of um, spoils system as you were, if you know, if you're going for the politics uh, metaphor here. Uh, how is that now evolved? Is that now obsolete in your mind, much as the key should be, but hasn't become? To me, the point isn't the key or not the key. And frankly, the key works for a lot of, of good reasons. The point to me is question everything and why it's that way and think about what you're missing. I think that that really applies to, to the resume. I, I'm sure there was a day in which the resume made a lot of sense. Now, this was a day back when um, mail was the way to communicate to someone who wasn't sitting right in front of you. Um, and you had to present yourself in a way that through the mail would um, represent who you are and how you show yourself. Um, and you had to summarize in something because you're pounding it out on a manual typewriter and um, you needed to have it very clear. And frankly, the art of creating a resume on a typewriter actually showed some skill which I don't even know that creating a resume on a computer anymore actually shows some skill. You grab a template from Microsoft Word, and it's, it's beautiful for everybody because we're, we're leveraging the technology. But it can also show you how lazy you are if you don't replace John Doe with your own name. It's an easy way to weed people out that way. Yes, or if you misspell the phrase attention to detail. That was always one of my favorites. Think about the resume like the key or the credit card. Um, and, and say, is this really the tool that we should be using to make these incredibly important decisions? You know, as, as a, a CTO, you know, I signed very big contracts, you know, for, for millions of dollars. I made lots of large decisions. But I'll tell you, at the end of the day, I think the decisions to hire or fire somebody were the most expensive decisions. Okay, not only were you talking about if your average tenure was three or five years, you're talking about a large amount of money on a repeated basis. They also have a lot of benefits and you support them with, with um, room and desks and snacks and, and everything else. But they also have a huge impact on the effectiveness of your organization. So everybody you hire has a monetary impact. They can bring a team down or they can pump it up and make it perform. And so hiring people was probably consistently the most important, most expensive decision that I was making. And I was amazed at, and still amazed at kind of the crude tools that we use to make those decisions. And just to subject you to, to another rant, you know, I look at the resume and it just screams to me um, that we need to do something different. The, you know, the, the thing, if you look at just about any resume, the biggest thing on the resume is the name of the individual. At the top, first thing At the typically top, you see. Usually centered, sometimes to the left, big font, address, cell phone number, email address uh, next to it. What 
does that tell you about that individual's ability to be successful in your environment? I'm gonna say zero or nothing unless the job prescription said must apply for this name. Yeah, yeah, unless there's some type of a weird job that is looking for everybody with the same name or, or, or something, um, it really has no value. And I guess I would argue on a Friday afternoon that it has negative value. Because not only can it communicate nothing about the individual's capabilities, it actually comes with a lot of baggage. In terms of biases? Well, in terms of biases, you know, all humans, humans bring lots to the table with, with everything that they do. And if you look at a name, what do you think about? Well, what kind of person might that person be based upon the name? You know, did I date someone with that name back in high school? How did it turn out? Was I friends with someone like that? Did someone bully me with that name? Was someone at a different job who I did or did not get along with? You know, uh, was it the name of a, a president for good or for ill? Uh, th there's, a, there's a lot that comes along with that. But when you think about it at the end of the day, it was what two grownups decided was the best thing when their, their poor infant child could not make the decision on their own. If anything, it's more of a reflection on the parents of the individual you're looking at than the individual themselves are. You again, you can start doing this throughout the whole resume. It's like, well, what else do you see? What else is big and bold? It's like, well, the company they work for. You know, how much do you really get out of the name of the company? The question is, do you recognize it or not? Yep. If you recognize it, do you have a favorable view of that company or not? Or did you know someone who was at that company? And are you then extrapolating your view of that individual to everybody at the company? Or did you just lose your employee to that company? Yes. Yes. And unfortunately, I've had that situation many times. Um, schools, you know, you have the same problem. So, you know, the average screener spends about 30 seconds looking at a resume to decide whether they want to, to schedule a phone screen or some type of a next step. And when you are only looking at a few data points and the biggest data points have very little signal in terms of the, the likelihood of success of an individual for your organization and have a lot of potential bias, you can't help but sit back and say, is this another key? Is there anything in a resume that could have signal in a positive way? If you were changing the system, let's say we're going from a resume-based hiring process to a non-resume-based hiring process, is there anything you would take from the resume into whatever this new system looks like? Uh, I'm going to answer this in two ways, and, and I love talking out of both sides of my mouth. Um, I, I'm going to say there's absolutely some things on the resume that have signal, but I don't think you can depend upon them, so I think you should rethink the whole idea of the resume. I think that signal that you get out is sometimes accidental, um, and somewhat random and not consistently provided. So the use of a resume as a consistent measuring tool to be able to evaluate an individual is a very hit or miss kind of tool. Someone may have been able to put some, some experiences around specific initiatives um, that actually show certain capabilities that really relate to the job in which they are applying to. 
but the likelihood of the confluence of the individual happening to use that example and them understanding that that is a unique skill set that's very valuable to the employer is way too small to depend upon. Or they knew it was a valuable asset to the employer and maybe they put it on the resume without having that in-depth experience that they're representing. Yes, and, and what what you sometimes find in those cases is there's a small group of people who have found out information that no one else has, and they know how to game the system. Sure. Unfortunately, um, hiring and getting jobs is a very important and valuable um, uh, decision, and therefore, if people can game it, um, if there's the opportunity to give yourself an advantage, people will take those opportunities. That's why you need to look for look for an approach where it's not easily gamed, where you can get a lot of signal, and you really can relate um, as closely as possible the outcomes or the capabilities that are really going to make that individual a success back to the individual. So before we get to discussing that that end state. It sounds like we're in this middle ground now. You hear a lot, especially on you know job sites or recruiting sites, that you know we'll go through and scan resumes and match it up to keywords and the skills and all you need to do. And we use you know machine learning and AI to do all this, and we'll give you the best candidates. BS in your mind? I would again talking out of both sides of my mouth. I think the idea is heading in the right direction. I think the application has largely missed the mark. Um, and let, let me tell you in a few different ways. One thing, if you're talking about scanning and using something like uh, natural language processing to be able to then um, score a resume and then match it, first of all, the, you need to have um, information on the resume that has real signal. And as we said just a few minutes ago, the signal in a resume is somewhat accidental and, and somewhat rare. So the resumes probably aren't the best things to actually put into that process if you're re really trying to get signal out. The other side of the coin is you actually have to have people who understand what you're trying to target and optimize for. And that's where a lot of these things um, you know, fall short is the organization that's doing the hiring doesn't do the homework and doesn't have the discipline to actually understand what success truly looks like. They tend to go to anecdotal subjective measurements to identify, oh, I want to be able to hire someone who's like Johnny, Jane, something like that. But they don't spend time really understanding, well, why do we think that Johnny or Jane um, are really great at their jobs? And are they? You know. In, in a world where you're dealing with data, you've got to be really careful that your methodology focuses on things that are objective and outcome-oriented, and you want to always try to link the signal with the outcome as close as possible. The more hops, to take a networking metaphor, that you are away from it, the more opportunities there are for bias to, to creep in or for the signal to be diluted or affected by other, other factors. So I think that the, the intention is good with a lot of these efforts. I think there are some places that are starting to get it better. 
Um, but I think we're really we're really on the the you know the early stages of of crawling when we talk about crawl walk run towards uh, a much better future. I think that there's still a lot of work that we have to have to cover. So setting up these technologies, step one is the end. Step one is the outcomes. All right. What does great look like? What does good look like? Here is what we're actually measuring. You have to take some time then to measure, collect that data, figure that part out. And only then, once you have that done, can you actually then create the technology in order to screen for those outcomes. Is that a correct way of thinking about it? Yes, but but it's a lot harder than, than you just made it sound. You know, saying, oh, we, need, we want to measure the outcomes, that's easy to say. It's actually a lot harder when you get into it um, because you have to actually really understand what the combination of outcomes. If, if someone just comes into an office and produces, let's say, 20 spreadsheets a day and the average employee produces five spreadsheets and you're a spreadsheet manufacturing organization. Then that person's great. Whatever that is, (laughs) that person is great. But if that person comes in and affects the productivity of the entire office, that person actually could be a net negative to the production of the entire office. So measuring just for the outcomes of the ability to produce spreadsheets would be a false outcome. You actually have to measure multiple things. You have to understand context. You have to understand ultimately where the company is trying to go and understand the nuances associated with how you help get the company there and how an individual can contribute as part of a larger body to it. That's where things become much more difficult. The good news is is there's been a lot of scientific groundwork done on complex systems and monitoring outcomes. And um, there's disciplines like the medical disciplines and and other areas that realize that you have to come up with theories, you have to test the theories, you have to validate, you have to continue to measure, you have to continue to challenge. And those are all the techniques that you need to incorporate into an effective process for being able to understand what data signals, what characteristics of a potential employee would make an amazing person to join an organization. We're all at basically the same level. So an organization that takes one step or a half a step out in front of everybody else gets to reap the benefit of being that leader. There's a lot of work to be done, but there's a lot more data than we used to have on outcomes. We're actually measuring outcomes a lot better in the workplace. And there's a lot more opportunities. Um, um, one of the big things that you've seen a lot of companies move to is they've moved from traditional waterfall development to agile development. Um, and the really cool thing about that shift is in waterfall, you had very poor data. These were big projects that took a long time and rarely did they go well. So it was hard to actually see what a successful project looked like. And you know, by the time you actually got to the end of the project, people were so sick of it, they didn't want to talk about it, much less look at the data and try to figure out how they could learn something from that to make the next one better. 
the thing about agile is, uh, and, and most companies do it roughly the same way, but you tend to have two-week sprints. So every two weeks, you measure your success. You have a fixed set of individuals on that team, and at the beginning of each sprint, they estimate their work. They make a commitment. Then you track and you see. You start to develop some much richer data sets that can give you information that helps you make data-informed decisions uh, much better. But the more we actually have measurement and then we have tools that are tracking measurement, the more we really start to have the tools to be able to make much better decisions with regards to potential hires. And it's not just potential hires, it's, it's um, team makeup. Who should be on a team together to create a really amazing team? It's, it's when is someone uh, you know, ready for promotion? Who's at risk for, for leaving the company? And understanding the, the actual cost benefit dynamics of should we offer this person more money to stay because it's in our financial best interest. Once you have the productivity metrics, the outcome metrics, and you understand the dynamics, you start to be able to make a much broader set of better decisions with regards to your talent pipeline or, or your talent supply chain. And that's what this is all really about. Ultimately, we're applying the same kind of thoughts that supply chain management has been doing for, for manufacturers and for distributors. And we're now looking at that from a labor force standpoint. So you mentioned that if a company takes a, a half step or a full step ahead, they're gonna be way out in front on this. So this sounds like we want to make a big jump forward in technology and a big jump forward, especially in how we think about hiring, but we're doing it in very small increments. Is, is that correct? Is there a way in which we can jump to the end state here? Like say from go from a, a key or a credit card to you know NFC or chip reader, that's a pretty big jump in there in a short period of time. Is that going to be the way here, or is it going to be much harder both in, on the technology side and just on the psychological side of being so ingrained and sitting down, talking with someone, making that hiring decision that way, as opposed to gathering the data and letting sort of um, you know AI or machine learning algorithm take over? I think it's a little bit of a paradox, or I'd say it's both. The shift in the mindset is a big leap. Okay. I think that that's where the large step forward is. The execution, once you've made that shift in your perspective, is very much an iterative, test, learn, refine type process. Yeah, I've been doing data science for a long time before it was called data science. And um, we were always, always refining and testing our algorithms. It was always, you know, will this al algorithm produce 5% better results? Okay, let's try that. And, and we would continue to refine it. We would learn a lot along the way, you know, which variables actually worked, which ones didn't, which one occasionally had some, some value. But it was really important to, to make the shift to saying, we should be looking at this differently but then let's create the process and, and the strategy to then trust that. Um, you, you know, the, the famous Moneyball uh, book and movie talked a lot about the, the uh, Oakland A's and their approach. You know, they didn't switch to a numbers-driven recruitment process and then win 
the you know the World Series that that year. It took years. Their their pattern of behavior continued to change. They continued to learn what to do. They iterated on. They started winning more games. They started winning more games. They started winning more games. And like most technology, they weren't the ones that actually benefited from it. The Boston Red Sox and the Cubs and all have actually gone on to win. They've sort of perfected it, quote unquote. Well, and and that's like all things. You know the the you know what we're talking about. Yeah, you know, I used to have a professor, a professor of entrepreneurship, and you know he would run these these big projects where you like try to come up with an innovative thing. And he used to always tell me like, you know, Tom, if this is a one in a million idea, there's still thousands of people out there in this world who have the same idea <laughs> that you do. So so don't don't act all cocky uh, about how great of an idea that even people who are on the front end of innovation, there's still a lot of other people out there thinking about this. And then that, that's kind of the beauty of this is ultimately this has huge positive impacts for the world. You're talking about um, being able to help identify the, you know, the greatest potential out of individuals. I've talked to people around here who, who've gone through our process where we use machine learning to help identify whether they're a good fit for a technology career. And it's amazing. You know, these are these are people who are parking cars at a restaurant or who is running a construction crew or teaching in a school. And now they're software developers. And, you know, they're excited. They're learning new technology uh, all the time. And they're in a, in a very different place. Um, you know, they've uncovered something that was possible that they really didn't know about. And that's what this this allows us to do. It's not just what you've done. That's the challenge. One of the challenges of resumes is essentially you're creating a story that limits your potential. Okay. I want to hire someone who has the same experience as the person that just left me. It's like, okay, so no one's ever going to become something different. No one's ever going to really stretch their wings or make big jumps in their career because you're creating this well-worn linear path for people. And once they've picked an industry or a discipline, they're kind of stuck there because that's what the resume guides them. Uh, last question, I think, for today. And getting over this mental hurdle for both individuals and companies, what is it going to take? Is it, is it a carrot from some sort of regulation, or if you implement this, you get some job training money? Is it the stick that the marketplace is going to start to um, downgrade companies that aren't hiring this way? What is the impetus for getting this kickstarted on a, a broad or a wide basis? You know, so I don't think it's a carrot or a stick, or, 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 or maybe it's the ultimate carrot, which is capitalism. <laughs> this is something that someone who wants to reduce their their average cost per individual, improve productivity, reduce turnover, improve morale, all of those things that ultimately will drop to the, the bottom line and the value of the organization, it all makes sense to them. The issue is it's been hard and non-obvious up till now, but because of the world has evolved, it's becoming more obvious, it's becoming easier. So we're starting to see a little bit of a tipping point of a lot of experimentation in various forms all around this central theme of, of using you know, ability-based testing along with customized training and kind of apprenticeship-like programs to be able to provide an on-ramp for people from the, the, the road that they were on before to a much faster, 
uh, more productive road for them and a better match for them. So I, I think capitalism is the ultimate driver here that, that it makes sense for companies to do this. Um, I think that um, we're still a little bit in the early stages, but there's still there's a lot of emerging activity around this, and I think it's going to only continue. We're going to see headlines after headlines uh, about this topic in the coming years. Tom Eilert, Chief Product Officer at Catalyte, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Adam.